Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hey, welcome everyone. It's been a while since we've done another podcast. I've been very lazy, kind of stuck in a rut. So hopefully we'll bring some really interesting content. I've also been trying to figure out how to move this forward. I've been doing this now for about a year and a half, trying to keep myself updated, but also to provide some information out there for people who are really interested. And there's so much good stuff that's happening out there. So what I've decided to do is to focus on a couple of things. We're going to talk about some really good work that's done by a group out in Alberta. It's called the Peer Network. And so they are an amazing people. And actually, you might have remembered from a previous podcast that we interviewed Dr. Mike Allen and Dr. Christina Koronik. So it's coming from this group, and they just do some fantastic work. So we're going to talk this week about the Peer Simplified Decision Aid around chronic back pain that was released in Canadian Family Physician in January of 2021. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the actual peer decision tool around osteoarthritis. So I think that's really interesting as well. I think what you quickly realize when we start to dive into what evidence is out there and how we can guide patients and how patients themselves can guide themselves to best practice or treatments that are actually going to improve their quality of life, it can get really disappointing. But it also helps them make very clear decisions about maybe this is something I want to try or maybe this is something that hasn't worked and be okay with the fact that I can let that go if it's not helping me. So when we come back to the Peer Simplified Decision Aid around chronic back pain, Why they developed this decision tool was to look at the effectiveness of chronic back pain treatment options, and there are tons out there. I always use the phrase that physicians and nurses give patients the habits and behaviors to manage and deal with their chronic illness. And with challenges or tools that are out there around chronic back pain in particular, we see commercials every day on TV that talk about particular strategies that people can use. And yeah, some people may benefit from that, but not everybody's going to benefit. So exploring the evidence that's out there around some of these interventions, I think is very helpful. So they also wanted to highlight uh, the study qualities that are out there. And it's quite disappointing that there's not a lot of really good studies that look at some of these interventions. So in some of these interventions, they really couldn't make uh, an adequate decision about whether or not to promote this. And they also wanted to look at a systematic reviews of the randomized controlled trials, so these gold standard trials on chronic low back pain. So systematic reviews are when we kind of pool all these together and try and quantify that information and make a decision based on all of these uh, studies that are out there. So how they developed that decision tool is that they use the systematic reviews to provide an estimate of the average effect of of a specific intervention. And so by pooling them, they tried to get the best possible uh, information that they could use to make these decisions. So it was really important that they looked at certain qualities of these interventions. It was more important that they were uh, studies that uh, were longer studies, so longer than 12 weeks. They wanted studies that looked at the intervention that compared the intervention to placebo or other sham treatment. They wanted to look at these bigger studies, as was mentioned, so more than 150 participants. And uh, they wanted to make sure that it was not industry-sponsored rather than it was publicly sponsored. So trying to take some of these biases out there. 
Unfortunately, there were only about three out of the eight interventions that had adequately number of randomized controlled trials. So the, there wasn't a lot of information out there that they could actually gleam some of their decision making. So what they tried to do is they tried to do uh, some subgroup analysis and try to change some of the information a little bit so they could make an adequate uh, uh, decision. So their primary outcome that they were trying to measure was the proportion of patients with chronic low back pain who had a clinically meaningful response to treatment. And that meaningful response to treatment was about a 30% reduction in their pain score. And this, even, even the meaningful outcome varied across many of the randomized controlled trials. And if you link into the Canadian Family Physician January 2021, you can see some of these graphics that are really amazing that they accomplished. You can start to see that there are certain interventions that they looked at and which, which ones had the most robust evidence. Things like exercise. The bottom line is it really, for people that were able to develop an exercise program, they usually had about a 28% benefit. And I just want to take a second there around the exercise because this becomes really challenging for the chronic pain patient, meaning that, you know, as a healthcare provider or as someone who cares deeply about this person, simply telling them to walk 15 minutes twice a day is not going to do it because what's going to happen is they're going to try it. But more than likely, this chronic pain patient will develop some significant flare-ups. And not only is it important how we help them establish a safe starting time and a stopping time, we also have to look at those pain protective behaviors that we develop when we're trying to do some activity like walking. So one of the questions I love asking patients is that when you walk, do you look at your feet or do you look straight ahead? Patients who look at their feet often unconsciously have a fear of falling. Or I had one individual say to me that she just didn't want to look in the eyes of the people that she had to pass, which was kind of interesting. We didn't, at that time, we didn't delve into it, but it would be something really interesting to explore with her. So if the patient or if the client or if the individual is looking at their feet, what they're actually doing is increasing the work of their shoulders, of their neck, of their hip, their lower back, and their knees. So their body is carrying an extra 45 pounds of weight. So what I want to encourage patients to do is to look ahead. Just like when we're driving a car, we follow the line. What you want patients to do is to look ahead. And it, in fact, looking ahead is much safer than looking down because you can anticipate what is coming in front of you. And it's very difficult to stop it, especially if you're in a habit of looking down all the time. And most patients aren't even asked that question, but I, I ask it all the time. So, uh, so if, they're, if I can get them to look up, then that's a great thing. Now, if they still do that, that uh, pain tuck or that tuck where they're coming forward a bit, then encourage them to get some hiking sticks. Because what the hiking, now make sure they're the right height. You don't want their shoulders lifting up. But what the hiking sticks do is they provide a little bit of safety. They can actually provide a little bit of stability for the patient. And it's also a great weapon if you come across a dog who's not a very friendly dog. Not that I want to encourage you to hit a dog, but I know that I'm very nervous with somebody else's dog that I don't know. And especially if that dog is not, hopefully is on a leash, but if they're not, that can be a little bit of a stressor for me, for sure. Not that I would ever hit a dog, obviously. But you want these uh, walking sticks to be a little bit on the low side so your shoulders are not hunched up. So, and then when you're trying to establish a certain amount of activity, what you want the patient to do when they start the walk is to check in on their body, ask themselves, what is the intensity of pain that they're experiencing at that moment? And remember that patients with persistent pain will have pain always in the background. 
So I'll give an example. The most common intensity I often hear patients describe is a five on 10. So if they're starting at a five on 10, ask the patient how far can they go before that pain goes up to a six or seven. And if they tell you that that within five minutes, that pain starts to go up, then their best starting point, and I know this is going to be really hard, but the best starting point for them is half of that. So that means only about two and a half minutes. So they can use a marker with distance or they can use time. So what they want to do is say, okay, I can go this far. I'm going to stop and turn back. So they might do that two or three times a day. And if they're doing that for three or four days with a, without a flare up their pain, and if the time is under 10 minutes, they can add 30 seconds to that time. Or if it's more than 10 minutes, they can actually add a minute or 10% of that time. So it's really important that they start with the right amount of time. They also start with the right kind of activity that they're going to enjoy. So it doesn't have to be walking, but walking tends to be the one that's easier to describe for patients. But it may be something as simple as walking in a pool or, you know, putting a life jacket on, just kind of moving in a pool, sort of checking in with their body to see where they feel. So it doesn't, and, it, and even in the studies that were actually done with the uh, peer group, is it didn't really matter what kind of exercise the patient did. There was no evidence that one type of exercise was better than another. What was important is that the patient tried something or the individual tried something. What that allows a, uh, an individual to do as well is become more function-focused and less pain-focused. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. The next thing they looked at was acupuncture. And so what they found, the bottom line, is that there was in inconsistent and non-significant results from the randomized control trials that were pooled. So the benefit was really uncertain. Spinal manipulation, so if we look at osteopaths, uh, if we look at chiropractors, and this was primarily looking at the lumbar region, not the cervical spine. The quality of the studies were not great. It was felt that there may be about a 15% benefit. And I think this really depends on how safe the patient feels of getting that manipulation or the relationship. Now, we do know that these hands-on therapies, why they seem to be so much more beneficial for patients is that often the individual who's providing that service is really uh, developed, knows that they need to take some time and develop some trust with that patient. And re I don't know if you remember the previous podcast that we had with the chiropractor from Prince Edward Island. He talks about how that safety factor becomes really important around spinal manipulation. When they looked at oral anti-inflammatories, is that the quantity of pills improved the effect, but obviously they had to be careful in terms of the amount, and there are these side effects, obviously, with anti-inflammatories that we've discussed in the past. So the likely benefit of anti-inflammatories was about 18%. Capsation, so if you look at topicals. Now, I just wanted to also mention, now they didn't compare the topical uh, steroids, but in a previous podcast, we did talk about that there is some benefit with these topical steroids. Uh, so we don't want to mix them together, however. So the most common one that we see out there in Canada is Voltaren Emugel. And uh, so the topicals uh, can be just as effective, especially around the musculoskeletal pain. So capsation, there were no studies that they were able to review that were there for longer than three weeks. And the benefit was really clear, seemed to be uncertain. Now, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't try it with a patient, especially patients who do find benefit with heat. So it is something to think about. When they look at opioid analgesics, uh, there was no effect with lower risk of bias trials. So there was no real benefit that was actually seen. 
Overall, that benefit was felt to be uncertain in certain populations. They looked at duloxetine or the SNRIs, felt that there could be about a 10% benefit. And steroid injections, there was actually no benefit. So when we see patients who are getting a, you know, epidural steroids or facet joint injections, they weren't able to find good quality studies that show that there was a long-term benefit. Now, I think all of us know patients that do benefit. So I don't think it's a treatment that we should think about abandoning at all. And the graft is quite useful. So going on to the article in Canadian Family Physician can help you kind of uh, sort of look at that. And, and I think it's a great tool to show patients as well if patients are open to this. But even a better tool is actually the tool that they have when they looked at how many people. So looking at how do you explain this to a patient so that they understand what kind of benefit they're going to receive from this therapy? How many people will have their chronic low back pain meaningfully improved? And that meaningful improvement is that 30% reduction by these different treatments. And what they do is they have these little face graphs. They're kind of cool, actually. And uh, I uh, will often show this to patients when I'm teaching pain self-management because I think it helps people understand because often often individuals or individuals feel that if they're going to try a treatment it's either going to work or not going to work that means 100% when in fact they need to look at realistic expectations around what the treatment is going to actually do for them so when we look at exercise for every 100 people that try 28 will actually get that meaningful reduction 40 people will have an indifferent response and 32 people will have no benefit so that's kind of interesting. Now, exercise is the most beneficial. With oral NSTEDs, for every 100 people that try, 18 are actually going to benefit. 42 people are going to have no benefit. So spinal manipulation, we're looking at 15 people will actually benefit. So they, you can go on and on. It's kind of interesting. The SNRIs, 10 people. And with the steroids, there was no real improvement with treatment. But, you know, as I said, some people do actually get some benefits. So we have to uh, balance this with a grain of salt. And they could not make any decisions really around acupuncture, capsation, or opioids generally. So hopefully you found that helpful. But I definitely would encourage you to look at this article in Canadian Family Physician in the January 2021. Very easy to find online. If I just Google Canadian Family Physician, go to the archives, I can bring this up fairly quickly. So we'll stop there and hopefully see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.